Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he is not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we go to the Lord, to the word of God this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. As the psalmist said, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and it is in your light that we see light. Father, give us the humility this morning that we need in order to submit to your word, that God the Holy Spirit would be working in our life to help us to understand clearly uh, your word and to see how we need to apply this in our life, that we might walk more closely with you as we continue to abide in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, and what we see as we do in most of Paul's epistles is that he begins with an opening prayer. In that prayer, we learn a number of principles related to prayer, which we will be studying over the next several weeks. But the principle we see as we begin is on... Gratitude. Paul begins almost every one of his prayers at the beginning of his epistles with a focus on thankfulness, that which, for which he is thankful. Now, there's a great lesson there for us is to look at these uh, statements and to find out what it is that Paul is actually thankful for. By way of review, in the last two lessons, we focused on the two major individuals mentioned in Paul's uh, salutation. The, Paul himself as the preeminent apostle of grace, and then Timothy, who was one of the many young men that the apostle Paul mentored and personally trained and prepared for the ministry, one who was very close to the apostle Paul and with whom he spent much of his time. In fact, two of the epistles in the New Testament were addressed specifically to Timothy, and he is mentioned in uh, four or five others as an associate of the Apostle Paul at the time that he wrote these epistles. So we read at the beginning, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And if you have a New King James or King James Bible, it will add the phrase, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of those textual variants that we have. Uh, there are a number of ancient manuscripts that 
do not have uh, that phrase in them. In fact, it's kind of a split witness, so uh, I tend to think it's not there, but it very possibly could have been there. But as you know, it doesn't have any doctrinal significance other than its lack of presence would put a focus on the fact that God is the source of grace and peace, which would have a particular implication to those in Colossae who are struggling with this uh, proto or early form of Gnosticism that is trying to distance the God, set, make a distinction between the God of the New Testament, the God of the Old Testament, and set up a whole series of emanations or angels or secondary beings, including Christ, who are mediators between uh, man and God. So by not having that phrase, Paul would be emphasizing the fact that everything comes directly from God and there's no, um, there's no intermediary. Then he begins immediately with his uh, prayer of thanks. He says, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Again, we have a little textual variant in the uh, some of the uh, ancient manuscripts. The majority text, which is similar to but not identical to the uh, text of the that that was used to translate the King James and the New King James, says inserts the word "and" between God and the word "Father," so that it reads: "We give thanks to." the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have an NIV, New International Version, ESV, NASB, any of the other translations that base their translation on what is usually referred to as the critical text, then you just don't have the end there. It reads, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So once again, I just point this out because this there, there are people who come along and try to argue that there are so many changes, so many uh, variants like this in the Bible that you really don't know what the original text said. And the problem isn't that we don't know what the original text said. It's not like we have 98%. It's that we have about 101 or 102% of the text, and 99% of the differences are like the two I've just pointed out. They are just the insertion of a phrase that may be found... For example, that phrase, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, is found in most of Paul's other salutations. Or it's the insertion of a word like and, or the omission of a word like and, that doesn't change the meaning or the significance or any doctrines whatsoever. In some cases, it's a word spelling difference. In some other cases, it's it's merely a, uh, a transposition of words. But 99.9% of them have no... Uh, real significance in terms of the meaning of the verse or the sentence uh, where you find those those differences. Paul begins by saying, we give thanks. This is the Greek verb, evkaristo, which is a present active indicative here, and the present tense has the idea of ongoing action. And this, and, and this is reinforced by the fact that he uses the word always, and in other uh, introductions and salutations, Paul not only will use the word always, but sometimes he'll say, we always pray for you without ceasing, emphasizing the fact that prayer is not something that is just sort of an extra thing in our spiritual life, but that it is should be at near the very center 
of our spiritual life. And the sad thing is that unfortunately too many of us don't give prayer enough attention. And I don't mean simply personal prayer, but also prayer with others. Because one of the things that we see here is that this is a first-person plural verb, meaning that Paul is not saying, I pray for you. He is saying, we pray for you. And what he means by that we, in terms of the immediate context, is, of course, uh, the Apostle Paul and Timothy. He's saying that we pray, and on a daily basis, Paul would probably meet with not only Timothy, but others of these uh, friends and associates that were with him. And on a daily basis, and maybe even more frequently than that, they would spend time praying together for all of these different churches and all the believers they knew and all of the other uh, prayer needs. That was a priority. Now, some people say, well, they can do that. That was all they had to do. Paul's under house arrest. What else is he going to do? And we all live very busy lives, but we're not so busy that we should not find time for prayer. We do live at a busy time, and I think that that does have an effect on our prayer life. It's one of the ways that the world system crowds out the priorities. If we think back, and most of you should be familiar with this, some of you may not, but if you think back a generation or two before there was radio, before there was television, before you had computers and smartphones and all of the other things that we tend to get addicted to because of their uh, visual and auditory stimulation, people found great entertainment and joy in sitting around and doing simple things like just uh, playing games or crossword puzzles or sewing or knitting or painting or doing any number of different things. And at those times, which were admittedly much slower and had much less uh, immediate demands upon our time, families would frequently, Christian families would frequently find time to pray together. They would always have dinner together around the uh, dinner table in the evening. Uh, That was true of my family. I grew up here in Houston. I don't ever recall a time that my father was not home by 5.30 in the afternoon. That's because that's when the bus got there. You know, we didn't have two cars until uh, I was in college. The only reason we had two cars then was I needed a car, and I had one. And then, and my dad, my folks just had one car, even though, my, as most of you know, my mother had polio, and she was in a wheelchair. She could still drive. You just had to make sure you stayed out of her way. <laughs> but she never let the fact that she couldn't use her legs uh, slow her down at all. But we only had one car, and... Um, And my dad left at the same time every morning for work, and he came home at the same time. He left at uh, 7.15 every morning. He'd usually catch a ride with somebody down to the bus stop at Meyerland uh, Mall Shopping Center back then. And he would catch the bus to downtown, and then he would catch the uh, afternoon bus home. And uh, either my mother would go pick him up over at the... uh, over at Meyerland and bring him home, or he would catch a ride with somebody else. But there was that sort of regular schedule, and so we always ate our uh, dinner together uh, around the table. And this was typical. This was standard operating procedure in almost every family uh, up through probably the 60s. And after that, things really went crazy. 
But it's a time when there should be a time, and families should carve out a time, whether it's one night a week or whether it's every evening if you can do it, where the family can spend time together and perhaps the father can read from Scripture. That used to be so standard for any Christian family. I mean, that's something that we have lost. I'm not, I'm not, and I don't want you to get the idea that I'm prescribing that. I'm giving you examples. I know that when I was in seminary, I would get frustrated because seminary professors would talk about the way they did things. I didn't fit into my life, and they had the tendency to have a, get a guilt trip. So I'm not prescribing specific things other than the the fact that there should be these words like we give thanks emphasize the fact that the spiritual life is not just a solitary existence uh, where you're concerned about your own little narcissistic spiritual life. Spiritual life in Christianity has to do with the body of Christ. It is getting outside of yourself and ministering to others, as we'll see as we go through some of Paul's prayers. And so I think that we need to be called back to a time when we realize it's important to be with, get together with other believers and pray. Uh, we can have a friend. We can have uh, your spouse, your family, uh, business associates. Many people have prayer groups where they work, and they'll eat lunch together uh, once a week and have a time of prayer. These are really good things and very beneficial, and it helps us to get out of our own little uh, self-absorbed focus on our own Christian life. I want to look at some of Paul's other opening prayers. It's very interesting to read through these opening prayers and to observe the emphasis that Paul makes on, on these prayers. There's only about seven of his epistles that begin this way. I don't know why he didn't in some of the others. I do know why he didn't in 2 Corinthians, because he was uh, on the verge of uh, correcting some important problems. And in Galatians, he's reaming them out. So that wasn't appropriate to start with a prayer of thanks, because at that point he wasn't very thankful. Romans. Let's just walk our way through in the biblical order of the books. In Romans chapter 1, we see that Paul is thankful, expresses his gratitude for the reputation that the Roman church, the believers in Rome, had developed. They didn't have just one church. Usually they met in different locations. Some were small, some were large. But they had developed a reputation as people came to the uh, capital of the Roman Empire. As other believers met with them and saw them, they took word back to wherever they were from about what was going on with this congregation in Rome. And so Paul is thankful for their, rep, for their reputation because their faith, and that doesn't just mean the doctrine that they believed, but the application of the doctrine that they believed, the impact that they were having locally in Rome was known throughout the world. He says, First, I thank my God through Christ Jesus for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, he uses a first-person singular there, and at the beginning of Romans, he doesn't include anyone else with him. So it is a first-person singular pronoun there, I thank my God. Uh, through Christ Jesus, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For my, as God is my witness, 
whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Notice how he's emphasizing this is something that goes on. In fact, the word that is translated without ceasing there is the Greek word adioleptos, which is the same word that he uses in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing. And that is a command, and it has the idea of something that goes on uh, continuously, something that, he, that is it's like a hacking cough. It's not something that you're doing without doing anything else, but it's something that it goes on off and on throughout your day as a, a habit pattern. The next time he mentions prayer for someone is in Romans 16, verse, verses 3 and 4. And there he expresses his gratitude for something that is uh, significant. We don't know anything about it, though, that Aquila and Priscilla risk their lives for him. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. So he is thankful that they did something in some way, risking their own lives uh, in order to um, help him or possibly to deliver him from a, from a life-threatening situation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we see that Paul is thankful for, first of all, the grace of God that has been given to the Corinthian believers, that they are have received the grace of God. At the opening here, it emphasizes the fact that as messed up, as confused, as carnal, and as sinful as the Corinthian church was, Nevertheless, Paul emphasizes they are receptors of God's grace. They are believers. They are just messed up, carnal, sinful believers, not like anybody we know. So he says in verse 4, I thank my God. But literally he says, I give thanks to my God. And the thing that we see here is again and again he's addressing his gratitude to God the Father. He doesn't pray to Jesus He doesn't pray to the Holy Spirit. He is expressing his thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ or in the name of Jesus Christ. So he says, I I give thanks to my God always, once again, that constant repetition concerning you for the grace of God which is given to you, and some translations have by Christ Jesus. But this is the same phrase we have again and again and again in Paul's writing, in Christo. In is the Greek preposition in plus the dative form of Christ. And for Paul, this is a technical term for our the believer's position in Christ, that at the instant that we believe in Jesus, when we are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit, this is a work whereby Jesus Christ uses the Holy Spirit in the cleansing process uh, known as the baptism by the Holy Spirit, where he, we, are, are, we are entered into the body of Christ and we become one with him in terms of our legal position before God. And because of our position in Christ, we have a number of blessings that God has given to us. All of our soteriological blessings related to forgiveness, propitiation, redemption, reconciliation, 
all of those along with the fact that we are adopted into God's royal family. Uh, we have been given eternal life. Uh, we have our, we receive God the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Uh, we are able to be filled by the Holy Spirit even though that is lost when we sin. It's recovered when we confess our sins. All of these things are part of what we have in Christ. So Paul is saying, the grace of God which was given to you in Christ. That is, all of the grace blessings that we have in Christ. That's what Paul is emphasizing to the Corinthian believers because they have managed to just muck everything up by their uh, carnality and their arrogance and their uh, divisiveness. It goes on in verse 5 to say that you were enriched in everything, in him. Again, it's not instrumental. The, word, the English preposition by indicates something that you use to accomplish something. So if you're uh, walking, you walk by means of a walker. It indicates dependency. Uh, if you drive or if you came to church this morning in a car, then you came by way of a car. That was your method. Uh, that's not what's being communicated here. It's the positional idea of being in Christ, so that you were enriched in everything in him in all words. He's not really talking about utterance here conveys the issue perhaps related to um, speaking in tongues. That's what some translators think the allusion is here too. Uh, but it's you've been enriched in everything in all words. It has to do with that which was communicated to them by the Apostle Paul and the other pastors that they had that taught them the word. Uh, in, in him, in, by, in all words and all knowledge. Now, the Ephesians. Now, remember, the letter to the Ephesians was written at uh, pretty much the same time as the epistle to the Colossians. So that you had uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were the, are the four prison epistles. They're all written within that two-year period of time when the Apostle Paul was under house arrest in Rome awaiting the disposition of his legal case before Caesar. So each of these are written at a time when he has uh, various men with him, such as Timothy, Silas is with him at this time as well, and others. And so he... um, they come and they go, so it depends on whether um, or not someone is associated with him or someone is right there uh, with him. Now, in Ephesians, in Ephesus, Paul is alone. When Paul begins with his uh, with the epistle of, uh, to the Ephesians, he does not mention uh, anyone else. He just says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So at the time that he wrote this, uh, Peter's not there, I mean, uh, Timothy's not there, Silas isn't there, Luke's not there, he is just alone. So when he then expresses his prayer in verse 15, it's a first-person singular prayer. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. So what is it that stimulates his prayer? It is his hearing about the spiritual growth, the spiritual maturity of the Ephesian believers. Now, Ephesus is located on the uh, w- near the western shore. At that time, it was on the western shore. It was a harbor. It's no longer there. It's been silted in for uh, 
about 1,500 years. Uh, but at that time, it was a major harbor in the western uh, coast of, of uh, what is now modern Turkey. So he's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus. That relates to salvation. And your love for all the saints, that's the application. And what we see here in a number of these is that he emphasizes two things, their faith in Christ, which strictly speaking would refer to salvation, but also implies their ongoing trust in Jesus in their post-salvation life. He's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love, that's the application towards others, their love for all the saints. Jesus said, this is how men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are commanded to love one another as Christ has loved us. So this is a an indication of their spiritual growth and spiritual maturity because they love there is a, an overt expression of genuine care and concern for all of the saints. There is a uh, realization of that community there. One of the things that I've noticed and learned recently that I've kicked around with some other pastors who've observed some of the same things is in the last uh, two or three years, I've had a, increasing opportunities to be involved in the Jewish community. And I have been impressed with how Jews within the Jewish community take care of their own, how they provide for their own, how they um, band together as a unit. Now, a lot of that is has been historically conditioned because um, they were so fragmented during the time in Europe during the time of the Holocaust that this is one of the ways in which they were t- taken advantage of. They didn't have communication. They didn't have that interdependency which they've developed in building really tight uh, communities today around the world uh, with a lot of uh, mutual care and concern. And I also have witnessed among the Jewish community a high level of financial giving to support the many different Jewish causes. I mean, it's, it's incredible and I think that's that's really how the church should be operating. It's convicting. And I, I just, I don't always see that operating. It may be there. It's there, I think, in some ways in older denominations had those structures. But we lost a lot in Christianity, in Protestant evangelical Christianity, when, when the conservatives lost the... Um, lost the battle against modernism and liberalism in the 1920s and 30s, and we lost the institutions and we lost the land and we lost the bank accounts, and we had to rebuild and restructure. That's why people think, well, fundamentalists really didn't do anything from the 30s to the 70s. It's they had to rebuild everything. Everybody left their established churches and went out and started new churches. This is the same period, early 1920s, when Dallas Seminary was founded. Uh, other seminaries like uh, uh, like Western Conservative Baptist Seminary in Portland, Oregon, which is a seminary of the uh, Conservative Baptist Association, that was not started until, I think, the late 50s or early 60s. The Conservative Baptist Association didn't even begin until the late 1930s when um, Dr. Beale and two other men broke from the Northern Baptist Convention 
and uh, established this new association uh, of, uh, of, of churches called the Conservative Baptist Association. So a lot of that kind of fragmentation uh, hurt the evangelicals and the conservative Bible-believing uh, Christians because it fragmented us. And we, the fragmentation that I've witnessed among conservative Bible-believing Christians doctrinally and ecclesiastically over the last 50 years is we would never have predicted. Uh, just as sort of an illustration, when I was a student at Dallas Seminary, for example, let's say in the field of eschatology, you might have, this is just by way of example, 20 different theological positions. Those probably have, have multiplied and expanded to 200 or 300 different theological positions and divisions in just the last 40 years. I mean, there's movements like post-millennialism, which was virtually ignored in the 70s because it was considered to be dead, has resurrected itself over the last 30 years and is a major influence within evangelical Christianity today. Uh, different, and, and within that you have different, within post-millennialism you have many different, um, many different positions that have not been seen before or understood before. So the fragmentation is, is unbelievable. And so two people get together and in 30 seconds they disagree on five minor points and they don't talk to each other anymore. We've been rendered ineffective by the sin nature, basically, because all of this divisiveness, strife, all of these things come out. They're examples of walking according to the flesh. Of course, false doctrines are very much part of it. I'm not saying we should have unity for the sake of unity at the expense of doctrine. The Word of God does not validate that. But what's happened is we've had all of these doctrinal variations and deviations and everything else, and that's part of the fragmentation that comes from, uh, from arrogance and from the sin nature. So we've had just this breakdown of, of the opportunities to really express this kind, the kind of love and care uh, to other believers that is exemplified here in Paul's prayer to the Roman, I mean to the Ephesians. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So on the one hand, he's thankful for their initial faith in Christ, implication their ongoing trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, their love for all the saints, but he prays in terms of intercession that they would continue to grow in their knowledge and wisdom and that God, uh, God the Father would give them an understanding of who he is and an understanding of his word. Next mention of thanks in Ephesians is in Ephesians 5.20 where Paul commands that we are to give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, emphasizing that the prayer of gratitude is addressed to the Father and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me add something else here. And this isn't true of our tradition. We have a tradition where uh, prayers are mostly extemporaneous and that prayer, and there is an emphasis in individual believers' 
praying. I frequently, I have the deacons uh, pray when we have our, have the Lord's table. I have deacons come up and pray when we close out our service. We have prayer meeting on Tuesday night. Uh, we don't have enough people show up. I don't know if that's scheduling or carnality. It's one or the other. Uh, but it, it's really a shame, and it's not just our church. I hear this from other pastors, is that the, the, the people, the attendance at midweek prayer meetings is pathetically small, so that in smaller congregations, it's, uh, it, they're, they're virtually unseen. They, they, they canceled them because nobody shows up, and the pastor got tired of having a prayer meeting with himself or with his wife. Uh, this is something that is important. Prayer is not just something that is a private affair in the life of the believer's spiritual life. It's part of our community worship, the worship of the corporate body of Jesus Christ. And so we are to be praying together. Philippians. Now, Philippians is interesting. I started looking at this, and in Philippians chapter 1, Philippians was written near the same time as Colossians. Timothy is with him. So he opens with, you know, Paul and Timothy uh, addressing the church at, uh, at Philippi. But yet he doesn't say, we give thanks. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Well, why is he leaving Timothy out? Uh, is he mad at Timothy? I thought, well, what's going on here? And I started reading through uh, Philippians, and I noticed something I hadn't noticed, and thank heavens for computers and the neat little things you can do with c- computers, and I created a, a visual uh, markup real fast with, with Logos to point to highlight all the first-person singular verbs with one color and all the first-person plural verbs with another color, and discovered within about five minutes that uh, it took me that long to count up to 75, that there are about 75 first-person singular verbs in f- the epistle to the Philippians. Now, this is only four chapters, folks. It's not Romans. It's not 1 Corinthians. It's a short little epistle. There are over 75 first-person singular verbs. I give thanks. I did this. I did that. I think about you. I pray for you. All these different first-person singular verbs. In contrast, Colossians, which is also four chapters but a little bit shorter, uh, Colossians has uh, fewer than 15 first-person singular verbs. And it has about six or eight first-person plural verbs, and there are only three first-person plural. That's, that's the we, uh, we usage we pronoun in Philippians, and those are all within a few set verses where Paul is saying, talking about what we have in Christ. We have redemption in Christ. So he's not just talking about we, meaning Timothy and me. He's talking about what we as a body of believers have. So you stop and you think about Philippians, and you realize Philippians is probably one of the most, and I would say arguably the most personal letter of Paul to any of the congregations. And it's really a thank you note. It's an expanded thank you note because they have sacrificed to send a significant financial contribution to help Paul out while he is under house arrest in Rome. And so he is writing to personally convey his own gratitude to them for, as he puts it, their participation or fellowship 
in the gospel ministry. And it's clear from his opening statements in chapter 1 as well as closing statements in chapter 4 that Paul is thanking them for what they have provided for them. So that's why he leaves Timothy out is because he's writing a personal thank you note uh, to the Philippians for what they have done and the way they have contributed to his ministry. We come then to... um, Look at the passage where he expresses his thanks in verses uh, 3 through 5. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You get the idea the way Paul uses this phrase that every time he thinks about the congregation, he's praying, maybe just bullet prayers at times, and at other times he's, you can picture him getting down on his knees with uh, Timothy and with the others and having a prayer meeting. You don't always have to get down on your knees, but that's the image that we usually have. He's always in every prayer of mine making requests for you all with joy. Why? For their fellowship, which is the word koinonia in the Greek, which means participation or partnership in the gospel. They are financially contributing to the gospel, to his ministry, helping to support him. But it's not just the financial aspect. It's that they're involved in evangelism and the gospel ministry Within uh, Philippi and in their own uh, in their own area. When we come to First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians are written during his second missionary journey, probably from Corinth, and uh, Timothy and Silas are with him there, and they're included. You have a number of uh, places where he uses that uh, first person uh, plural pronoun in both of those epistles, and we see it in his prayer. He says. Uh, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. There we see the, the big three in the New Testament values, faith, hope, and love linked together. What's he thanking them for? He's not thanking them for their health. He's not thanking them for circumstances. He's not thanking them for those things. He's thanking them for what really matters, and that is their faith, their trust, their ongoing trust in God, their labor of love, that is their Christian service, which is motivated by their, their love for God the Father, and their patience of hope. That's they're waiting, as is a theme of First Thessalonians, of waiting for the return of the Lord. Their patience of hope. They are waiting in confident expectation. That's what hope means. Hope doesn't mean some um, optimistic wish, like I hope this, it's still warm for the next two weeks and we don't have any more cold spells. You don't know whether it will or won't get cold. Neither do the meteorologist, the weather guessers. Um, But that's how we usually use the word hope. But that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. Hope in the Bible has to do with a confident expectation of a certain future event. So Paul says their patience, their waiting uh, for the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and Father. So they're waiting for the return of Christ, uh, confident that he will return. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he expands this, again, going back to refer to their uh, prayers of gratitude. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, 
That's adioleptos again. We are to pray without ceasing. Because when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, there's a first-person plural pronoun again, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea and Christ Jesus, for you also suffered the same things. Apparently there was persecution and there were some who were arrested and physically beaten in, uh, in Thessalonica. And, uh, and so they endured that and it did not destroy their faith. So he is thankful for them because they welcomed the word of God. They were positive to God's word. When they needed to be in Bible class, they were in Bible class. But it didn't just stop there. They wanted to read the Bible. They wanted to know what God had to say. So they were individually students of the word like those in Berea, which is just down the road, who didn't just take Paul's word for it, but they searched the scriptures daily to make sure that what he was teaching was grounded in the Old Testament. Then we have 2 Thessalonians. He addresses the Thessalonians a second time. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We, once again, we, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. Their prayer is focusing on the spiritual growth of those they're praying for. And the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. Again, he's focusing on that application to others. So that we ourselves boast of you. See, boasting is good, not about yourself, but of others. He's, he is proud of how these uh, Thessalonican believers have put such a focus on the word, and he, and he can see their growth as great evidence of the grace of God in their lives. Boast among you, boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. That they didn't whine about it. They weren't out there focusing on all the bad things that were happening to them, but they viewed that as just a greater opportunity to see God work and to trust God and to advance to spiritual uh, maturity. Which he says in verse 5, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Again, he mentions thanks in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always, there's that word again, always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. That's experiential sanctification or spiritual growth in the church age comes through the work and dependency upon God the Holy Spirit, and belief in the truth. It is the Spirit of God and the Word of God, often referred to as truth, that's the basis for spiritual growth and spiritual advance. If you focus on just the Spirit, which some groups do, that just ends up in mysticism and goes nowhere, and you end up subjectively worshiping your emotions. If you just focus on the truth, then you end up knowing a lot about the Bible, but you've forgotten the real, uh, the real core of our spiritual life is, is empowered by the Holy Spirit, which means we have to have that close relationship with God and dependency on the Holy Spirit, who's the one who produces the growth. And then the last one we'll look at is in Philemon. In Philemon, which is a personal letter to Philemon, who is in Colossae. He's in that church. 
And Paul says, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all the saints. So there again, we're emphasizing the faith in Christ and then the expression of your love, your concern, your help and aid for other believers. Uh, Philemon 6, and I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become more, may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Again, it's basic on knowledge. The knowledge of your word, it ju- just doesn't happen um, by waving a magic wand or hoping it would be so. Now, there's one passage that emphasizes ingratitude, and this is in Romans 1, 20 to 22, and this describes what happens in the pagan, unbelieving segment of, uh, of humanity, that uh, Romans 1.20 says that they've got clear evidence of the existence of God in what God has made so that they are without excuse. And then he says, because although they knew God, that is, unbelieving atheists who claim to not believe in God, this passage says, don't count on it, deep in their core of their thinking, they are probably as convinced as you are that God exists. It's just that they've been covering it up for a long time and wouldn't admit it if they had to. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. Arrogance and ingratitude go hand in hand. The core of arrogance is self-absorption. You can't be grateful and thankful if you're self-absorbed. They, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Okay, let's go back to Colossians 1.3. Paul says, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer is directed to God the Father. Let's just hit a couple of summary points on prayer. The first point is Paul always prays to God the Father uh, through or in the name of Jesus Christ. He never directs his prayers to Jesus or the Holy Spirit. We are to pray to God. Now, some people are just ambiguous in their prayers, and they pray to the Lord. Lord can be the Father or the Son, but and sometimes hymns are a little ambiguous. We try to give just a, a, a scotch of literary license to hymn writers, but we, we try to be careful not to have hymns that are just cloaked prayers to Jesus, and there are a lot of hymns that do that. So we try to have choose hymns that avoid uh, those co- sorts of uh, of uh, Christian malpractice. Second point, when Paul is writing and it includes, and, and uh, he's with someone and he includes them, he almost always includes them in, in the prayers. They are praying together. Uh, the only exception, as I pointed out, was in Philippians where he makes it a more personal, uh, more personal epistle. In seven of Paul's 13 epistles, he expresses thanks for something in the life of those that he is addressing. Third point, it's important for us to think through gratitude. What are you grateful for? As I was working on this yesterday and flipped through one of the books I have on different stories and things, I usually find them a little too trite to uh, uh, to mention. And I looked up gratitude or uh, thankfulness in one of them, and three of the four episodes of, of gratitude that were given in these little vignettes all came out of the Holocaust. 
And the one that stuck in my mind was of the testimony of a, of a woman who was a Holocaust survivor. And she recalled the fact that, that one spring, one flower broke through the ground just outside the barracks, and that it was right near the path where the women would normally walk, and how much effort they made to not step on that one flower. It's just the, the very little, when you get under testing, the very little things that you don't pay much attention to today become important. And she said what that reminded her of was the dream that she had every night, and they talk about how Holocaust, uh, those who were in the camps would focus on different memories or remember certain things. And one thing that they, that she said I always remembered was those boring nights when I was stuck at home with my brother and my mother and my father and mother was knitting and father was reading and my brother and I had to do our homework and I just hated those nights and she said I would give anything to have a lifetime of those nights now. See, we we forget what we have, we're so focused on what we don't have and what we're trying to get that we forget to be truly, genuinely soul-deep grateful for every little thing that God has given us. As you think through gratitude, I want to give you an assignment. I want you to read through some of the Psalms. There are a number of Psalms that have Thanksgiving elements. There are some Psalms that are Thanksgiving Psalms. Psalm 30, Psalm 32, 34, Psalm 41 through 11, Psalm 92, Psalm 116, Psalm 118, Psalm 138 are individual thanksgiving psalms. I'll go over those again because I know you couldn't write that fast. 30, 32, 34, 41 through 11, 92, 116, 118, and 138 are individual thanksgiving psalms. Psalm 65, 67, 75... 107 and 124 are communal thanksgiving psalms. That is, this is the, the community of Israel will come together and sing these psalms in the worship in the temple. That's the difference between an individual psalm is where an individual is expressing thanks to God for what God has done as an individual life. Communal thanksgiving is what God has done for the, for the community of Israel. Psalm 65, 67, 75, 107, and 124. Read through those, read through some of Paul's prayers, and just write down some of the things that they're thankful for as an example from the Holy Spirit telling you what kinds of things you should express thanks to God for. What we see in the opening part of Colossians here in the first two verses of 1, 3, and 1, 4 is a focus on, on gratitude. In terms of translation, when Paul says we give thanks, the direction of the thanks is to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the King James puts the always on the other side of praying, which is a participle, but the always, it really is an adverb. It modifies the main verb, and it should be translated, we always give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then that word praying is a temporal participle and should be translated when we pray for you. So that the main thought is we give thanks when we pray for you. 
We give thanks when we pray for you. And the, the prayer then is directed to God the Father. Now, the motivation for that comes out of a causal participle, since or because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Oh, here we have it again, and your love for the saints. Again and again and again, we see these two things together. We saw it in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Ephesians 1.15, and Philemon 5. We're thankful on the one hand for your faith in Christ, and second for your application in terms of love for all the saints. Prayer is not an option for the believer. And I don't mean quick bullet prayers. I mean serious, thoughtful, well-constructed prayers. As we conclude, I want to read a poem written by William Cooper, who is a hymnist from the 18th century, wrote a good bit of poetry. He was a, um, he was a good friend also of John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And he penned this regarding the importance of prayer. What various hindrances we meet in coming to the mercy seat. Yet who that knows the worth of prayer but wishes to be often there? Prayer makes the darkened cloud withdraw. Prayer climbs the ladder Jacob saw. Gives exercise to faith and love. Brings every blessing from above. Restraining prayer, we cease to fight. Prayer makes the Christian's armor bright. And Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. While Moses stood with arms spread spread wide, success was found on Israel's side. But when through weariness they failed... That moment, Amalek prevailed. Have you no words? Uh, think again. Words flow apace when you complain. And fill your fellow creature's ear with the sad tale of all your care. Were half the breath thus vainly spent to heaven in supplication sent, your cheerful song would oftener be, Hear what the Lord has done for me with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded about the importance of prayer. Prayer is a conversation with you. It is communication with you. It is our opportunity to communicate to you the things that are in our soul, our gratitude to you for all that you have done, all that you have provided for what Jesus Christ had given us, for the way you work in our lives to mature us, to bring circumstances into our lives, to give us the opportunity to uh, claim promises, to trust you, and to advance to spiritual maturity. Father, we're thankful that we have a great salvation that is so, so infinite in its scope that we can barely scratch the surface in our comprehension. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to believe in him, to believe that he died on the cross for their sins, and that by faith alone they might have everlasting life. Father, we pray for those who are believers here that we might be reminded that of the importance of prayer, be reminded of the importance not just of our own personal prayer life, but also the importance of prayer within the community of believers.
prayer with others, prayer whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's coworkers, whether it's others in the body of Christ in church, the importance of group prayer, the importance of getting together with others and praying for uh, the needs of the church, praying for uh, the outreach of the church, praying for those who are lost, praying for the government, praying for those who are fighting overseas, praying for those who are struggling with their own faith as they may meet challenges in college or university, praying for young men who are seeking to be trained to go to seminary and praying for missionaries and other churches. All of these and much more should be part of our prayer life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the need to apply this as we continue our study of prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.